When men and women fall in love, we try in all sorts of ways to communicate our love to that special other person. And one common way to do that is through love letters. Of course, in our modern world, love letters are probably going by the wayside these days. They're probably love emails or or love texts. (laughs) But whatever the form, love letters are a unique way to communicate, and I've collected various samples of love letter phraseology over the years. And what I find interesting is that oftentimes when we are just head over heels in love, it brings out this hidden poet within us. We want to we find all these dramatic and flowery phrases that will let that other person know, oh, we have these incredible feelings for you. And so we find phrases like this one, you are my living treasure, the diamond in my life. Or how about this one, I could drown in your eyes. And then this one, dearest, I want to grow old with you so we can finish our lives together. I vow I will treasure you and care for you until your very last breath. I love you beyond measure. I think that's pretty awesome. And what's interesting is that what I just read is only the beginning of what was actually a lengthy proposal of marriage. And what made that particular proposal so unique, it was written on a whole series of post-it notes that the guy stuck all over the refrigerator door of his girlfriend. (laughs) A proposal on post-it notes. (laughs) I thought that was very creative. Well, here's what's sad though. You know, once we're married, and we have to live with each other. We start to see the fact that we're rough around the edges. And married love notes still exist, but they tend to change a bit. They're a little bit less lofty and a little bit more down to earth. I've got a couple examples up here like this one. This is a, something a, a man wrote to his wife. I, all I want for Christmas is to be loved by you. Still, you better get me something. <laughs> doesn't quite have that panache of the, you know, the, the love note that you write when you're really trying to get connected with someone for the first time. And then here's one of my absolute favorites of all time. My darling husband, about that problem you had with the TV remote. You were right, there was something blocking the signal. It was this, the piece of black insulation tape I carefully cut and placed over the sensor. <laughs> I love you, little smiley face. <laughs> You know, we express love for other people in all kinds of ways. And I actually think that note says something about that woman's love for her husband. I think she recognized that his need to control the remote (laughs) perhaps was unhealthy and was interfering with their relationship. So she took some loving action to highlight the issue. Not to be mean, but to get her husband's attention and hopefully bring about some change, to make some corrections. And it occurs to me that sometimes a a letter or note with a loving word of correction might be just what a relationship needs to get refocused, to get back on track. And that kind of word from one person to another can be so helpful in a friendship, in a marriage, and it also can be helpful in the spiritual dimension of life. And that's why Jesus Christ took the time to write a series of love letters to his church. These love letters actually aren't 
written by Jesus. We're going to talk about that in a minute. They're recorded for us by the Apostle John. And what's fascinating, if you read the opening chapter of Revelation, please don't do it now, but read the opening chapter of Revelation, and we find that John has this incredible, amazing encounter with the resurrected Jesus. It's one of those experiences that I call wild, weird, and wonderful, because it is mind-blowing. And John is just praying one day and Jesus Christ shows up in all of his splendor and resurrected glory. And John, Jesus gives John a unique set of instructions. He basically says, John, you are to serve as my divine secretary and you're going to write letters that I'm personally going to dictate to you. And then those letters are going to be delivered to seven specific first century churches. Now, these letters aren't romantic, of course, not like how we think of love letters. Yet we never can forget that God is love. And because God is love, then these are love letters. Love letters written to the church by a Savior who loved us enough to die for us. A Savior who loves us enough to listen to our prayers and walk with us each day. And these letters dictated by Jesus reveal God's love in distinct and practical ways. Because they contain words of commendation. But also words of critique and correction. And here's what we need to understand. Even though these letters are directed to specific congregations, they're also universal. They're for every church in every age. And that's why God has preserved them for us in the Scriptures. Jesus dictated these letters because he loves his church. Jesus loves us. And he wants the best for us. So this morning, for the next few weeks, we're going to explore some of these letters. And our goal is to try to hear Jesus' words of love to us so we increasingly can become the kind of individuals and the kind of church that Jesus wants us to be. And in today's letter, we're going to find that Jesus is making a special plea to the church in ancient Ephesus. He's saying to them, learn to love again. That's the message, learn to love again. So let's take a look at Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 1, as Jesus begins this letter to our spiritual ancestors. And he starts by offering some words of commendation. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. What we see here and what we see in every one of these letters dictated by Jesus is that they begin with a distinct image of Jesus. 
And based on what's written at the end of chapter 1 of Revelation, we know, that the, we know what this image here means. He talks about seven stars and seven lampstands. Well, the seven stars represent what are called the angels of the churches. And the seven lampstands represent the seven churches who are going to get these letters. But one of the questions that comes up is, who or what is the angel of the church? Does Jesus mean that every church is watched over by a guardian angel? Is that what he wants us to conclude? I I, I don't think so. We need to remember that in the scriptures, an angel simply is a heavenly messenger of God. And we see them show up from time to time in the scriptures. Often they show up as heavenly beings. They're angels who look like angels. Sometimes they show up in human forms. They're angels who look like human beings. We don't know from this particular comment by Jesus which form these church angels are going to take, but here's what I think we need to understand. The angel of the church is going to serve as God's postal carrier. And John will dictate this letter, and this angel of the church in either angelic form or human form, is going to deliver that love letter to that church. And here's the most important aspect of this image. Jesus is holding these stars, these angels, in his hand in this image. And he's walking among the lampstands. He's walking among the churches. And the idea is that that image symbolizes the incredible authority and incredible power of Jesus Christ. And that's a perfect image for introducing the letter to the church in Ephesus because the Ephesians must be reminded that Jesus is in charge and they're not. You see, we know from church history that the Ephesian believers, oh, they're a very prideful bunch. The city of Ephesus is an influential cultural center. It's a seat of government. It's prosperous. These believers have money and they are full of themselves. And so Jesus begins this letter with an image which reminds them, Christians, you're under my authority. And as you read these words that I'm dictating to you, I want you to receive them with some humility. Don't be arrogant. Now there's another humbling thing about this particular image. The the churches here are represented as lamp stands, not lamps. A lampstand isn't the source of light. A lampstand just holds the light. In other words, churches, we don't generate light on our own. The light in a church comes from Jesus. And so we, if we're followers of Jesus and if we embrace the light of Jesus in our minds and in our hearts and our lives, then we can radiate his light out into our church and to the community around us. It's a reminder that in the church, we're not the center of attention Jesus is. And we're here to hold his light and shine his light and reflect his light. And all of this is so essential for the Ephesians to understand. They need to embrace a different attitude because they're so prideful. And pride is the foundational sin of humanity. Pride gets top billing 
on God's list of deadly sins because it is so harmful to our relationship with him and with others. So this distinctive image of Jesus as the one in authority hopefully is going to encourage the Ephesians to receive this love letter with some humility. I hope we can receive it with some humility as well. Because just like the Ephesians, and just like every church, we need to be discerning so we can recognize pride within ourselves when it's starting to crop up. And if and when pride ever starts to appear, then we need to eradicate it from our lives and from our relationships because pride is the enemy of love. And so now after this introduction, which reminds the believers who's really in charge, Jesus then offers some words of loving condemnation. The Ephesians are doing some significant things right, and Jesus wants to affirm that behavior. They've persevered. They have faced persecution. They've faced hardship, and yet they continue to carry out the work of the church. They know the scriptures well. And so they're not easily led astray by phony leaders or false teachers or those who promote ungodly practices. This is a church that wants to get the Bible right. They want to get their doctrine right, and they want to do what is right. And we need to understand that doing what's right isn't always easy in Ephesus because so much of the city's cultural life and commerce is built around worship of the pagan goddess Artemis. Ephesus is a very ungodly city. And so it's really admirable that the Ephesian Christians keep pressing on because in their community it would be so easy to cave in. It would be so easy to go along to get along. There's always a pressure there for followers of Jesus to just blend into the culture Don't make any waves. Just be like everybody else. And Ephesians don't do that. Their behavior here is very, very commendable. Based on what Jesus says, I I, I get a picture of a congregation that is hard at work. I think if we could travel back in a time machine and step into first century Ephesus, I think we would find a church with a full calendar of events. I think these people would be meeting for worship and taking communion to shut-ins and taking meals to those who are sick at home. I think they'd be going to Bible studies during the week and teaching themselves how to defend the faith. They would be very, very busy. Busy in the work of the church. Yet busyness is not automatically a sign of of spiritual health. In fact, the Ephesians remind me of a church that I know right here in the U.S. that's also hard at work. They're very busy with church activities. They've got a full calendar. But over time, here's what I've seen. Their busyness has become an end unto itself. And people feel like they're continually jumping from one activity to the next and they've lost sight of any overall sense of purpose. The the church, their official motto is We're a busy church, always serving. But over time, the people started to realize we're kind of losing our way here. And so they jokingly rewrote their church motto. 
They say it this way, we're a busy church always swerving. (laughs) Not serving, but swerving. Just swerving from one activity to the next, doing all this church work, but no overriding sense of purpose and direction. Why are we doing what we do? And, And the reality is that a church can do a lot of good, yet still miss the heartbeat of what it means to follow Christ. And all that we do must fit into God's larger purpose for us or we cease to be the church. And sadly, that's what's been happening in Ephesus. And that's what Jesus points out next as he moves from commendation to critique. And this is where he demonstrates some tough love as he identifies a key problem that must be addressed. Let's take a a look at verse 4. I have this against you, Jesus says, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. So so think about this. Ephesians have just been commended for all this good stuff they're doing. They're, They're standing against persecution and false teachers, but the motivation for that behavior is not based on love. Well, what then could be driving their actions? And we're not specifically told, but I think we can reach some logical conclusions. For some of those ancient believers, it might be a sense of duty. We do this because this is what the church does. And for others, it might be just deeply ingrained habit. We do this because we've always done it. But you know what I think is really happening here? I think many in the church probably have fallen into the trap of trying to be godly rule keepers. You see, that's what often happens when you mix pride, and we know that pride is a big problem in Ephesus, you mix pride with religiosity. And you wind up with a church whose character is more like that of the Pharisees than expressing the character of Christ. Pharisees pridefully enforce religious rules. Christians embrace and live out Jesus' great commandment of love. As Jesus said in the book of Mark, chapter 12, verses 30 and 31, our purpose is to love God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and to love other people as we love ourselves. That is the foundational love of Christianity. That is the first love of a believer. It's the first love of a a church. And that's the love that makes a church a church. Because when we love God completely and when we love others selflessly, it defeats our selfish pride. Loving God completely, loving others selflessly enables us as a church to put our trust in Jesus and to follow him wherever he leads. leads. And what's tragic is that the Ephesians have lost that love. And the way they lost it becomes very clear when we take a look into the original Greek text. That word translated abandoned in verse 4 is a very tragic word because it means that the Ephesians literally walked away from their love 
of Jesus, but they didn't do it deliberately. That word implies that they lost their love as a result of neglect. They were so busy doing that they forgot to take time to nurture their love. And so often that is how love disappears from a relationship, not through overt rejection, but through simple neglect. Jesus wants these Christians to understand that lack of love in the church is not just a mistake. It's a core problem. It's a core problem because God is love and his actions toward us are motivated by love. Jesus died and rose because of love. We are forgiven because of his love. And if we don't respond to God with love and if we don't act toward others with love, then we are completely out of step with God. If we ever abandon godly love, then we become a church in name only, not in essence. So I think about this, it reminds me of a married couple I once knew whose love had grown stale because it had been neglected. They were comfortable in their relationship, but they hadn't done anything to nurture their life together. They were not interested in divorce. They weren't interested in being unfaithful. So they just continued on in the basic structure of married life. And they had meals together and discussed the bills and went on vacations. But they were doing not one single thing to generate passion and keep their love alive. And they settled for complacent routine. They just kept doing what they'd always done because they'd always done it. And over time, I saw them become more like roommates than husband and wife. And I thought to myself, you know, that seems like a marriage in name only, but not a marriage in essence. And what I saw happen with that couple, I think it's a metaphor for what happened in Ephesus. Going through the routines, doing the work of the church, being busy, doing a lot of good stuff. But oh, where was the love of Jesus? It wasn't in their hearts. It wasn't in their lives. And Jesus wants to rescue them from that condition. And this is what's so powerful. Despite their lack of love for Jesus, Jesus has not stopped loving them. Oh, that is so encouraging. The incredible, steadfast, long-suffering love of our Savior for us. Brothers and sisters, he does not give up on us. And Jesus loves them enough to give them this warning. And then he's going to follow up with a way to address the problem. And so in the final part of this letter, after he's given them their critique, then he explains the corrective action that he wants the Ephesians to take so they can learn to love again. Let's continue on verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, 
Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So the Ephesians have fallen from a great height. They've fallen from a place where they were filled with love for God and love for one another. And Jesus says you need to reflect on where you've been and where you've come to. Because if you're honest with yourself about that, then it'll help promote the humility you need that will lead to repentance. Because when we're prideful, we'll never repent. (laughs) When we're prideful, we can't admit that we've screwed up. And by the way, what's repentance? Repentance simply means we say to God, Lord, I've messed up. (laughs) And, Lord, I don't want to do that anymore. Repentance is about changing direction. It's not just about apology and confession. It's about, Lord, I know that was wrong. And I know I'm imperfect and I may keep stumbling, but I want to head in this direction. I want to change direction. That's what repentance is. Jesus wants them to know that this is very serious stuff because if they don't take that corrective action, then he's going to remove their lampstand, which means he's going to take away their church. Mm. And why would that be? Because, as we've already talked about, without the motivation of God's love, then they're not a church. They're just a recreational club or a social service agency or some other group, but they're not a church. Yet the good news is this, if the Ephesians get back to doing what they used to do, if they let their actions be motivated by their love for God and love for others, they can learn to love again. They can be who they used to be. But it means they can't just say something to God about changing, they have to change. We're not given specifics about what might change, but again, I think we can draw some logical inferences. The the place they've arrived is where they're doing a bunch of outwardly churchy stuff, (laughs) but they're not building a loving relationship with God and others. So what needs to change is this, they need to focus on relationship more than on rules. And this means they need to embrace spiritual practices that will help them rekindle their love for God and others. For example, sometimes when the love of a church grows stale, people fall into the habit of reciting rote formulaic prayers. Well, if so, then they need to change that. They need to talk to God in a conversational way, opening up their hearts to God and actually connecting with God through prayer, recognizing that they're talking personally with the creator of heaven and earth and letting him speak his wisdom into their lives. Here's a real common trap. Sometimes churches that have lost their love read the Bible simply to acquire knowledge. And if they're a prideful church, like the Ephesians are, Then they read and study the Bible so then they can impress everybody else with how knowledgeable they are. Well, if that's the case, they need to change that and read the scriptures in order to connect with the living God. To not just know about him, but to know him and let him cause our love for him to flourish. When we're hanging out with other believers, We do more than just talk about news and weather and sports. 
It's great to do that. It's fun to do that. That's part of what it means to be in community. But in addition to socializing, what churches need to do is talk about spiritual matters as well and encourage each other in the life of faith. We need to be able to ask people how they're really doing. There's times when we need to say, how can I pray for you? Oh, by the way, can I just pray for you right now, right here, while we're standing here in church? Because a lot of times when we say, oh, I'll pray for you, we go away and we forget about it. But, but see, those are the kinds of things that I believe Jesus wants to see happening in Ephesus. To engage in these core practices that will help them rekindle their love for him and love for others. And Jesus wants every church to do the same, including ours. Because this is how we maintain a strong, God-shaped love. And when we embrace God's love, and then we express God's love, oh, that is when we flourish individually and as a church. And yet here's a question that I'm often asked. You know, if, if my love for God has grown cold, is it possible for it to heat up again? And the answer is yes. Yes, it is possible for us to rekindle our love for God and our love for others. We can learn to love again. You know, marriage so often is an analogy in church, a metaphor in church. Marriage is an analogy for the relationship between God and his people. Just why we come up with a lot of marriage stories to illustrate the kind of love we're supposed to have for our Lord. But several years I heard an amazing marriage story that shows the power of how love can be rekindled, how people can learn to love again. And a few of you heard this story uh, at our marriage workshop last fall, but it's such a powerful story, I think everybody should hear it because it does speak to the power of a rekindled love. So here's what happened. This is a true story. There's this married couple that wasn't doing well. And the wife decided that she was going to pursue a divorce. She didn't tell her husband. He knew that things weren't great, but he didn't know how bad they were. Without telling him, she consulted an attorney. And she was at a point where she was very hurt, very bitter, very steamed. And she said to this attorney, she said, I am so angry, I don't want to just divorce this guy. I want to hurt him. So they concocted a plan. Here was the plan. Plan is the wife would resume the marriage, not tell the husband about the pending divorce. And for the next 60 days, she would just pretend that she was going to be hopelessly in love with him. Pretend that things were back on an even keel, that life was great. And at the end of that time, she's going to say, I'm divorcing you. The idea was to build up his hopes and then dash his hopes. And as that woman and that attorney concocted the plan, they thought, oh, this is going to be sweet. So the wife heads off to carry out the plan. The attorney's waiting for the call. Time to serve the divorce papers. And a month goes by, and two months go by, and no word. Three months go by. And then finally, the attorney gets a call. The wife calls up and says, burn the divorce papers. We're going on our second honeymoon. Honeymoon. 
Think about what happened here. For three months, that couple had shifted their focus. They'd shifted their focus from fighting to loving. Instead of neglecting their love, they'd nurtured the lo- their love. And yes, the wife started out by play-acting, but when she and her husband began doing the things, this is critical, doing the things that had caused them to fall in love in the first place, it stopped being acting. They learned to love again. It's exactly like what Jesus said to the Ephesians about their love for God and for each other. He said, do the things you did at first. Get back to the basics. Go back to the foundation. Jesus wants them to know they can love again if they return to the actions and the attitudes that caused their love for God to flourish in the first place. It can be true in a marriage. It can be true with God. It can be true with the church. If our love has grown cold, we can learn to love again. And so Jesus gives the Ephesians this incredible love letter. Commendation, critique, correction. There's definitely some tough love in here. He wants it to be a wake-up call so they'll change direction. But here's what I really like. Even after this very stern warning, he offers a final word of affirmation, highlighting the fact that the Ephesians refuse to accept the practices of the Nicolaitans. And, and here's what I find heartwarming. Jesus doesn't want this, this letter to end on a note of correction and warning. He'd rather end on a note of commendation. And I think that's a sign of his great love. And I think this serves as a practical example for us. Because all of us have experienced moments when we need to say words of critique and correction to others. But it can be so much better received if after the critique and the correction we can end with commendation. And that's what Jesus does with our spiritual ancestors in Ephesus. Now, you may be wondering, who are these Nicolaitans? Well, the answer is they were a really bizarre group. (laughs) They claimed to follow the teachings of Jesus, but they also followed the teachings of Balaam, and Balaam was a sorcerer and a false prophet. So think about that. Jesus and Balaam, that's like oil and water. They don't mix. And the result was that the Nicolaitans stirred all this together into some sort of spiritual stew, and they yielded themselves to the culture and basically promoted a life of unrestrained self-indulgence. One early church leader described the Nicolaitans this way. He says, these are people who abandon themselves to pleasure like goats. Whoa! (laughs) Now that's a pretty heavy indictment. And it's true that as followers of Jesus, we're supposed to be engaged with the culture so we can be effective lampstands as a church and shine Jesus' light into the culture and draw people to Christ. But the Nicolaitans went way off the rails. They were so engaged in the culture that they behaved just like the worst elements of the culture. And there was no light and life in that. And the Ephesians fortunately see the danger and they keep that teaching and they keep that lifestyle out of their church. So there's a final word of praise here, but it doesn't negate the core problem. These believers must learn to love again. 
so they can restore God's purposes to all that they do. Their purpose isn't to be a busy church doing church work. Their purpose is to be a lampstand, radiating, God, radiating God's light to each other, to the world around them. And thankfully, because our God is so merciful, these believers in Ephesus now have the chance to get back on track. And if they take this love letter from Jesus seriously, oh, they will be victorious. And Jesus says here that spiritually victorious people get to eat of God's tree of life. Now, now the tree of life is interesting. We first encounter that tree in the beginning of the Bible in the Garden of Eden. What's tragic is that because of Adam and Eve's sin, humanity was cut off from that tree. But what Jesus is saying, a day is going to come when the tree of life is going to be restored to us. We're going to get to eat from it again in paradise if we're victorious in this life. It's an incredible promise of restoration when we're going to regain all that was lost in Eden. It's a promise of a better life in a better world. It's a promise of eternity with God. And it's a promise that becomes a reality when followers of Jesus hold firmly to our first love. Now, as I said at the outset, I believe these love letters are for every church and every age. And I believe he wants us to learn from these letters written to our spiritual ancestors. So what can we learn and specifically apply? I see some reflections of us in this letter. I don't think we're a prideful church. I think we're doing a lot of the things that that Jesus commends the Ephesians for because like them, we emphasize sound biblical teaching. We want to get our doctrine right. We don't want false teaching to creep into the church. We want to be people who embrace the truth and stand for the truth. And that's all good. And it's all commendable. What we don't want to do is make the mistake that the Ephesians did. We can't do those good things while neglecting love because that's what our spiritual ancestors fell into. We can't do the right thing out of duty or obligation. And so as we worship, as we study, as we interact with each other, as we interact with friends, neighbors, coworkers outside the church, our actions must be motivated by the love that comes into our lives through Jesus Christ. A love that has no place for pride. A love that helps us lay aside our personal agendas. And we focus on the unity of God's church the love of Jesus that comes into us so we can reflect his light to each other and to the community around us. And so in response to this particular love letter from Jesus, I think here's a great question for each of us to ask. Am I motivated to act because of my love for God and others? Or have I allowed my love to dissipate? And if in the quietness of your own heart, if you're honest and say, you know, God, my love has faded, then don't feel guilty and don't give up. Embrace the same invitation that God gave to the Ephesians. Learn to love again. And this morning, whether your love needs to be rekindled or whether it's burning brightly, 
Here's what we all can do. We can embrace the promise of Jesus and we can be victorious. Not through pride, but through humble love. Love for God. Love for others. The love of Jesus that sustains us and gives us hope. That love which transforms us and makes us a church. That love which enables us to encourage one another. That love which equips us to make a difference in this broken world in which we live. Toward the end of this letter, Jesus says, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Are we listening? Oh, I hope so. Let's listen. Let's love. Because then we will be victorious. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I am just moved by the fact that Jesus took time to write love letters to his church. Thank you for this one. Thank you for the words that Jesus dictated. And I I ask, Father, that you'd help each of us learn to listen to the Holy Spirit so we can discern how to respond to these words from our Savior. Above all things, I pray that we never, ever would forsake our first love. Help us cling to you, Jesus, so that all of our actions will be shaped by love. Love for you and love for others. And we pray this, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen.